This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. It's that time of year when many Canadians are heading south to escape the winter or hopping on planes to go skiing and embrace the winter. It's also not too early to be booking summer air travel, especially if you're thinking about Europe. Passengers are now supposed to have additional rights. As of December 15th, the federal government's new regulations have taken effect, mandating that large airlines such as Air Canada and WestJet pay up to $1,000 in compensation for a delay that's within the airline's control and not safety-related. So how is this working out? Not so well, according to published reports, which include complaints from passengers detailing their cases and questioning why their requests for compensation were rejected by the country's major airlines. This, in turn, has prompted Transport Minister Mark Garneau to advise disgruntled passengers to file a complaint with Canada's airline watchdog, the Canadian Transportation Agency. While filling in for Libby's Nimer on Family Day, I was joined by our Zoomer squad to discuss David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. Well, first of all, bravo to the government for creating this new regulation. Airlines have never been held accountable for these types of delays in the past. And as as someone who flies fairly frequently, I can tell you there's nothing more frustrating than feeling powerless in that kind of situation. Now, what's happening here is it seems like Air Canada is violating these new air passenger protection laws. And so far as it appears to be cherry picking which customers it reimburses and which it doesn't. Mm -hmm. I read one story where... um, You know, there was a couple on the same airline and the husband was reimbursed and the flight wasn't. So that's unacceptable. Um, It seems like they're sort of erring on the side of not having to shell out money. Um, I imagine this would have a big impact on their bottom line at the end of the year. Um, But the thing is, is that, you know, these airlines, they kind of shoot themselves in the foot because they'll often text the reason for the delay. And if the delay is a crew constraint or some other reason that is within the airline's control, and then, you know, these passengers, they go to file their complaint, and then they come back and they've got a different excuse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, 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 it's obviously puzzling for the for the customer. So I think that there needs to be, you know, more consequences uh, for these airlines when they do violate it. There, you know, according to the laws, there should be a $25,000, vi- you know, fine for each violation. Uh, that the airline has to pay and, you know, have with over 10,000 complaints, have they had to, have they had to pay any fine for violations yet? I don't know. David, what's your take on this situation? Well, it's an, it's an important question because we should point out to the audience that uh, Zoomer age group represents more than half of all flyers. So uh, 52% of people who flew last year in Canada were Zoomers and 55% of those who were heavy travelers five times or more resumers. So it's very much, uh, I, I, you know, the topic of flying on a plane doesn't seem like it's an age thing, but, but our age group is overrepresented uh, among, among passengers, so it does affect us. And I think that this is just the latest 
in a long string of, you know, Melissa correctly used the phrase shooting themselves in the foot. But if you, the airline industry has, in my experience, spent most of the last decade at war with its customers. And we had that terrible video from United Airlines where they dragged the person off the plane. We had the uh, dead dog in the overhead compartment. We had, you know, with, nowadays with uh, your ability to take video, you can see all these things. And here's a clear regulation that they're supposed to pay compensation. We have thousands of complaints. We don't have one or two. You're always going to have one or two because, you know, the law of averages human error, no biggie. But this looks like they were not prepared for this at all. There is no transparency as to, you know, how they pay, when they pay, why they pay. And I, I don't think it's good enough to say to the customers, go call the Canadian yeah. Transport Authority. I think the government should have made a case, uh, an example right away, and levied a couple million dollars worth of fines to show that it's serious. I think the, the issue here is, are they listening and are they responsive to your side of the story? And when they don't pay at all, or they pay one passenger some and the spouse not, or they don't even answer. I think that's what makes people, you know, infuriated. I think most people will meet them halfway, uh, particularly around issues of equipment and whether it even, even if it, in fact, even if it is within their control. Mm-hmm. The crew didn't arrive. The other plane got delayed. The inbound uh, didn't get there. Um, yes, they could have done something about it. Hey, we're sorry. Here's your compensation. Most people you know, would go along with that, wouldn't necessarily, you know, sue the airline into oblivion. Mm -hmm. But you need to see something coming back from them. And it looks like this was a sitting back there where the legislation was passed, the regulations were there. Mm -hmm. All they had to do was cooperate. And, you know, talk about what you said, going to the media, we're going to spend a half an hour on this in front of a large audience. Why does Air Canada need that uh, publicity. Well, I guess they don't care enough to not get that publicity. Well, and the other thing is, is this is a regulation, right? I mean, like, if you have a problem with yep. it, then you can go ahead and challenge it. But it's a regulation that stands today, so you better be abiding by it. Yep. But I do think it's, I, I, do, I must say, I said it earlier, I, I repeat, I do think it's a little bit limp and lame for the feds to say, well, you know, call CTA and sing your blues to them. David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging, our Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Appropriately on Family Day, we also talked about family life in 2020. There are all kinds of variations on the family beyond the traditional nuclear family of a husband, wife, and two kids. Dr. Natasha Sharma is a relationship and parenting expert. She is also the creator of The Kindness Journal, and she joined me in studio. I created this as a way for people to establish greater sense of connection. Um, in 2016 is when we launched it, and it's a prompted journal. It takes just a few minutes each night to fill in. So for people who don't like, kind of want to look at a blank page, the questions are there, and they're all based on scientific research designed to promote a more positive and more connected mindset, to, to create acts of kindness in your life, but also to notice the acts of others, to, to be mindful in sort of your favorite moments of the day. And what this does, I guess the goal is to really establish a better sense of connection to oneself as well as to people, because I do think that that's something that's uh, lacking more today than 
And it not only does it apply to family life, it applies to work life, Absolutely. every every area of your life. Absolutely. You can cultivate a more positive mindset. It's not something that's set in stone from birth. According to our genes, we can actually reshape and we rewire can. that. You probably don't have exact numbers or percentages, but in terms of variations on families, uh, I would say there are, there are at least half that are different from the traditional nuclear family. I think it's safe to say that that number is is certainly significantly larger. Um, and we know that sort of at least the divorce separation statistic is about one in two, but that certainly there's a much more diverse uh, look to what a family looks like in 2020. What is timeless in parenting is not so much the circumstances and the events that surround the family, but truly how uh, the t- what the top-down approach looks like. So how are the caregivers, the people in charge, the parents handling whatever the situation is, whether you have a sort of traditional two-parent family of a, of a husband and wife, or you have um, two moms or two dads or parents who are divorced and you spend part of your time in each home, what it has always come down to now and even for the, all previous generations is what is the emotional and mental fitness of the parents. Because if they're handling things in a healthy, uh, functional um, way that is conducive to giving the children what they need, which is love and safety, that hasn't changed. You know, that hasn't changed from 1920 to 2020. It's the same. Children love, uh, need warmth, they need love, they need security, they need safety and stability. So, Regardless of the circumstances and what the family makeup looks like, if that's there, then the chances of them developing into healthy, happy adults is very high. Um, In terms of family life for couples, uh, there are many people who do not have children. Either they choose not to have children or they are uh, unable to and don't choose to adopt. Uh, What do you say to people whose family is their partner, their husband, wife, their common law partner in terms of feeling that fulfilled family life and not to feel regret or remorse about what didn't or didn't, you know, was, Mm -hmm. did not come to pass. Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, about ensuring once again, that we have a full life with a full community and having an a connection to our community is, I strongly believe, is something that's sorely lacking. And I've felt that for a number of years, which is part of the reason that I um, created the Kindness Journal. But it's it's been a part of, of, of a really strong aspect of my work and, and my voice for a while. Um, as couples who are older, at actually at any age, but certainly um, what we know from research is that as we age and get older, our connection to people, whether we have kids or not, this actually applies to both. Um, the connection to our community and um, establishing roots and connection to our neighborhood, uh, the city we live in, choose to live in in the world, and the people that are in it is extremely crucial in terms of happiness and mental mm-hmm. health. So I think the, I think the age um, cited in one study was post 50 or 55 that the correlation between one's personal happiness and the quality of their friendships becomes the biggest predictor of their emotional health. So in a nutshell, be good to your friends, make 
like you don't have to make tons of friends, but make friends and keep them, nurture them, make sure they fill you up, you know, that they, you mutually add value to each other's lives and make them your family, make them your extended family. And we're seeing, I think, more, I think the light bulbs are going on because mm-hmm. I'm seeing this, these co-living stories and these, of these like women in their seventies who just decide to get a house and they're going to live together. And I think that that's, you know, um, I think it's very important. Dr. Natasha Sharma is a relationship and parenting expert. She is also the creator of the Kindness Journal. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. How is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau dealing with the issue around rail blockades across the country? This was among the hot topics our crack strategy panel addressed this past Tuesday. Up until Thursday, the entire via rail passenger system was down, prompted by the blockades of protesters who are sympathetic to the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs against a natural gas pipeline in northern British Columbia. And the economy has been hit with something like $350 million worth of goods being blocked from their destinations every day. Joining Libby Snymer in studio, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stins, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. It's an intensely difficult situation. This is not an isolated incident. This has been coming for a long time. There are a lot of very angry, upset people who effectively constitute a displaced cat class in our society. And the only appropriate action is dialogue. It is not to say the rule of law must prevail and let's go in there all guns blazing. Uh, boy, Karen, do you, do you agree? No, 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 I don't. Um, I think that um, it, there's some complications within oh, sorry let me say every i agree with what charles said about the fact that the indigenous in our nation uh, live in poverty and we need to address that that's accepted the issue we're having now is a one of power and control around who makes decisions on behalf of Na- first nations communities because we have elected band councils who are negotiating in good faith thinking that they actually had the authority to negotiate when in fact they don't and if you're talking about how do we get communities out of poverty it's these types of projects that will help these communities, giving them jobs, invest uh, them in the outcome, engage them in dialogue, that all happened. And now it's being it's becoming undone because the hereditary chiefs believe that they were the ones that actually had the power and control in these negotiations. So it, um, what I find shocking is that the federal government didn't see this coming because Trudeau has made it his mission over the last two um, mandates to uh, bring reconciliation to this issue. To, he's made it his personal mantra uh, for the Truth and Reconciliation Act. And so how, how could this be a surprise? How could we be in what, day 12 of this blockade with no clear path forward? To me, is quite shocking. John, uh, does Trudeau look weak or does he, does he look measured? 
he looks extremely weak. And the only thing I could say that I agree with the prime minister is when he said that this is a moment in history, and this might be his history uh, that is going to be affected by this, because quite frankly, the, the, this is an illegal uh, protest that's been happening. And I think the fact that the prime minister is refusing to, to recognize it as such is a challenge. I think the fact that he has been away in Africa and, and doing other things with respect to, you know, trying to get us on the UN Security Nation, Security Council seat, um, while this was going on was a travesty. The fact that he, le- he didn't go to Barbados because of the public relations that would have been affected by that, him going to Barbados while the House comes back after the long weekend and he's not in this chair addressing this issue would have been devastating. So he had to come back. There's no other choice, but he was being pressured to come back. But I think that, you know, he comes back and he makes a statement and and it is, and I think the leader of the opposition was right to say it was the weakest word salad or whatever he (laughs) called it um, in in history in a situation that it's been going on for some 12 12 days or more. Uh, He had plenty of time to think about this in his trip back to Canada, and notwithstanding the fact that he was talking to other ministers. This is a bad, bad uh, issue for the Prime Minister, and it's not to say that we shouldn't at least start off with dialogue and at least try to de-escalate. That's always number one when it comes to any level of protest, including, uh, especially with the Indigenous community. Um, but he sent a minister there on Saturday with no no luck at all, no success, uh, comes back and says, oh, we had a good conversation, we laughed, we cried, we, we had all these, but nothing concrete came out of it. And now we're here, and, and we're in a situation where, quite frankly, there are there are professional protesters now that are taking over this well, issue now. I, and to the point, John, that you were raising, and, and Charles, even to your point about dialogue, who's having the dialogue? Like, it, it's completely unclear who is talking to whom in this situation and how we can, what, what the dialogue is going to produce in terms of an outcome. Indigenous Affairs Minister Mark Miller um, visited the Tuandaga uh, Reserve Um, spent nine hours talking to them very directly. It was clear going in that it was unlikely that the protesters were simply going to say, oh, all problems solved, we're going to walk away now. But again, I would ask my colleagues, the alternative is imposition of the rule of law, which is going in forcibly and removing these people who do have truly legitimate grievances. And yes, the protest is illegal, just as many protests through human history have been illegal in the search for civil rights. And this is a critical moment in the history of this country. And to suggest that we should be looking at this through the lens of, oh, the prime minister looks weak and is ridiculous. Charles Byrd, Karen Stintz, and John Capobianco fight back's Tuesday strategy panel. It was later in the week on Thursday when Trudeau's public safety minister, Bill Blair, announced that the RCMP would move off Wet'suwet'en territory in northern British Columbia. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. It was a hot topic in the news this past week, the Ford government's new Ontario license plates. There are many observations that the letters and numbers cannot be made out at night or under certain lighting. It was a police officer in Kingston who first made the observation on social media last weekend. Joining Libby on Tuesday to talk about the challenges with these new Ontario plates, former Toronto police officer and former Toronto City Councillor John Burnside. I found it a little bit funny that the uh, 407 cameras had no issue uh, reading the plate, so they obviously consulted with them. I mean, can can one... Uh, look at every light conditioning and and uh, make sure that it's visible in all, under all circumstances? Not necessarily. I think the biggest problem the government has on this is that they 
as opposite as an opposition they were so critical of the liberal government and you know they were going to take care of the taxpayers money they were going to make all the right decisions and you know we've seen you know whether it's Boeing with the 737 Max or there are a lot of other examples where things are products are recalled they do all the testing something gets overlooked and and then uh, here we are it almost seems obvious that a dark lettering on a light background is easier to see than light lettering on a bright background. Am, am I wrong about that? You're probably actually being too kind. Oh. It doesn't seem obvious. It, it, it actually is obvious. That <laughs> that's the problem. I'm I'm having I'm having a problem reconciling that issue. Obviously, dark lettering on a light background is so much easier to see. So, where was that disconnect? What I'd like to know is. Was it a consultant that, that did the test? Did you know who who did the test and under what conditions were these tests done? Uh, that said, if they if they uh, get it early in the process, which they are now, probably be fairly minimal losses. I think last year they had to recall one hundred and forty five thousand plates because of other production issues that were the old style. Uh, you well, know they what? get they get worn out. Yeah, I think they had some production yeah. issues and, and they were peeling off and whatnot. I think what drives me crazier, though, Libby, is that I see so many plates out there that are rusted and that doesn't happen overnight and you can't read them. They're illegible. You see so many plates with covers on them that are so dark. And I'm looking at one across the street right now uh, and that black Ford Bronco. You can't read the front plate. And, uh, and then people have bikes in front of their plates. They're transporting this, that and the other thing. And there seems to be no real concern. So that's probably a bigger concern to me is just the fact that there's so many plates out there that you can't see now. Can any of those cameras that are being rigged up, will they be able to catch that? Well, that's even worse because now you have these uh, these speed cameras and red light cameras. And if you can't read the plate, and that's I think there's an incentive for people not to keep their plates in good working order because if you can't read them, you can't uh, you can't get a ticket. Uh, but as I say, back to my original point of how the how the government was very sure that the 407 cameras could could read the plates. So uh, that that's a little bit odd. Uh, I mean, they have better technology because uh, they collect a lot more money. Is that it? Well, I'd, probably they were just consulted uh, a little more uh, than the you know than the other t- doing the other tests. They wanted to make sure that those cameras and hopefully uh, speed cameras and whatnot were uh, able to actually pick up the plate. When they came up with this, they said that there could be up to $4 million in savings by changing the manufacturing and going to a universal license plate size versus the specialty size currently being used in Ontario. Huh. Yeah, not exactly as advertised, I guess. But we'll see. I mean, this is early in the process. And as I say, I I think the plates were just unveiled or not unveiled, but just uh, started to get distributed in early February, certainly in 2020. So they have enough time to recover. But certainly it doesn't it doesn't look great for for a government who's really the backbone of their messages uh, protecting taxpayers money. Yeah, it it doesn't. I mean, uh, part of what they said for everything was, hey, people, you know, we're going to find, don't you think we can find four cents on the dollar? Couldn't you find four cents on the dollar? And everything that comes up, they seem to be saying, actually, we're spending more than the last government and and they're getting a lot of uh, 
flack. Absolutely. I mean, as I say, this is sort of a little bit of a Groundhog Day issue. You know, um, it's over and over. And when when a party's in opposition, and this isn't to pick on any specific party, but when a party's in opposition, they know how to do things correctly. And then when they get into government, it's obviously a little uh, bit more difficult. Former Toronto police officer and former Toronto City Councillor John Burnside. Listen for more on Plate Gate on tomorrow's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Ron and Guelph phone to say who he thinks is to blame for labor unrest among Ontario teachers. My biggest thing is the fact that when I look up in the dictionary and I look up the word bully, the teachers' unions comes to mind, okay? Because that seems to be what they're trying to do to the public, is bully the public into, you know, accepting how many years are we going to keep going if we give in to the teachers' unions? This is going to be nonstop. It's, it's been, it was nonstop to the Liberals. And now... Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Rachel in Brampton, who phoned to say parents need to stand up to cuts to education. I'm a mom as well. I'm a 17 years old. I have a child who's under the spectrum of autism, and this affected me uh, tremendously. I mean, I, I lost a couple of days' work, but I still support the teachers. And exactly what they're saying, the class size, the support is cut, and even my own child support is, you know, not the way it was before. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.